I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, welcome. Welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. Today, we're going to be talking about Sorinda Fox. We've been hearing a lot of requests for her, so finally at it. She's got a very interesting tale, a very interesting book, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, That's right. So, Vishkana, tell your friend that his episode is ready. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we like to start off with a little bit of good news or a little bit of an update before we jump right in to our dolls, our groupies, our muses. And before, um, I had noticed a couple of episodes back that three weeks in a row, Mm -hmm. I hadn't led any of them. And I had really just, I don't know, I guess I had got into a little bit of a you know what you got this you take this and Mm -hmm. you got this you take this and you were there and you were like I got this let (laughs) me take this and then Andrea another doll was there as well so I just wanted to speak to the power of groups Mm -hmm. there's some people that call them tribes Mm -hmm. 
I don't know how I feel about that terminology. Okay. Um, but I, I like the idea of groups. And apparently, you know, women who are associated with strong groups are more successful. And I've definitely been feeling that way. The more positive communities that I have with women, the Absolutely. stronger I feel. Absolutely. It's important to have other strong women around you supporting you. Absolutely. It makes you more motivated, for one. And just knowing that there's these amazing women behind you that have your back. That's so powerful. That's right. So I have you and I have the dolls, Miss P. So Miss Pamela's Toronto Dolls, which are a group of women who were writers and they're comedians and they're producers. And actors and just... All through the arts, singers, artists, soap makers, and some of us are more than just one of those things. Absolutely. And then I have my Peterborough groupie girls that were there right when I started, you know, off in the music scene, Mm -hmm. um, who continue to go to shows with me and they're still there for me. I was doing a Skype with a couple of them. Three of us were in together in the same room and then we were Skyping with a friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever seen the tarot deck that's in the cups the three of cups we looked and i don't say the word literally often but we literally Literally. looked like the replica of the three of cups card we all had cups in our hands and the way it was set up on the screen in the little rectangle we were embodying and the three of cups is three women together and it embodies friendship so that was really nice and then starting my yoga teacher training i now have a group of like-minded people who are into that realm of things Mm. and then there's a podcast community right we have podcast tribes i know it's amazing it's exciting to be getting into that more yeah so hopefully the people are feeling and i can tell with you know the interactions and the messages and things like that that people are feeling involved in this is just really great and we're making more and more connections with the actual women that we're speaking about and we couldn't be happy and we appreciate everyone listening and just thank you yeah thank you for the kind words and the support Mm -hmm. and then you know thinking about you know i listened to a podcast about women who identify as witches Mm -hmm. and talking about intuition in the fifth dimension and so then realizing well I have a group of people that want to be talking about this kind of stuff too and like I was at yoga the other day and I was just having a hell of a day and I was just lying there and we had to get up and get some props and I've been trying to work on my intuition I've been trying to work on my messaging and things like that and I just look over and I'm like the guy beside me is gonna get my props Mm -hmm. he gets up we had not made eye contact. We hadn't even really acknowledged each other. But he gets up and looks over at me and he's like, you want some? And I said, <laughs> yes, please. And he brought it over to me. And then I just started listening to a podcast on polyamory. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, good God. <laughs> I am polyamorous. <laughs> I, I didn't re I didn't realize that before because people would ask me, do you have a boyfriend or do you have a partner? And I would go... No, mm-hmm. but that didn't exactly feel right. Mm-hmm. But it didn't feel right saying yes either. And then so listening to this podcast and then being in with the, this community of people, I realized, oh, there are other people that I identify this way. And that's having the capacity to have relationships mm-hmm. with different people and to love people in different capacities at one time. So I really feel like a lot of these things are really identity forming. 
Absolutely. And I just encourage everybody out there to go and find yours. Go and yeah. find your group of people. It's always going to be a positive experience to put yourself out there and learn more about yourself and try to connect with others. That's it. And then when the communities start crossing over and coming together, so like the groupies and Pleasant that's going to come on and the tarot mm-hmm. and the mystics and, you know, groupies, polyamory, that goes together well. But no, I've not necessarily heard those words put together yet so there we go awesome well speaking of groupies coming together um it's thanks to my dearest friend uh lizzie doll that i'm even going to be doing this episode on sarinda um i met lizzie online through live journal if you can believe that over 10 years ago now um hi lizzie yeah hi she lives in england so we don't get to see each other in person but every day basically we're talking um we actually she decided to form a live journal community again over 10 years ago called vintage groupies and together we built up this amazing community where we shared basically what we're doing on this podcast but through uh like a blog um talked about all the amazing groupies that we loved, shared photos, and then other people would come on and share the photos that they discovered. And it was just beautiful. And it's still there if you want to check it out. It's called Vintage Groupies. Um, Just vintagegroupies.com? Uh, it's it's a live journal community. So I don't know what a live journal is. Really? It's no. just basically like a, an online blog. And uh, Lizzie... She was, she's like my counterpart when it comes to this because where I was like Anita and Marianne and um, Pamela, she she was sort of more like the punk rock and roll glam rock scene. She loves Sorinda and Perry Lister and uh, Nancy and all these other women. So um, I think we sort of kind of taught each other about them and. She's the one who sent me Sarinda's book. Uh, it's called Dream On. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Lizzie. Um, maybe one day you'll share your stories as well because she's got some pretty uh, amazing. Oh, babe, yeah. you know, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> I don't remember, like, if it, I found her or she found me, but we definitely found each other on Live Journal because we were both, like, writing blogs about our experiences like Aww. going out meet meet cute. Vans a, a, and... a groupie meet cute yeah exactly and uh i'm so thankful that i have her in my life she's my best friend so great i can't I... wait to meet her yeah i love you lizzie and uh this one is for you so getting into sarinda uh she was born kathleen victoria het zekian forgive me if i pronounce that wrong yeah because what even is that <laughs> yeah um, she was born in February 1952 in California. I think she was the third child. Um, something that seems to be uh, often the case with these women. Oh, I thought you were going to say like as like the last child, as like babies, you know, like <laughs> no. classic like no. baby child, you know, <laughs> thinking that they're hot shit, no, no, you know. No, no. I was no, going to say kidding. she had like an absent father which a lot of, it seems, groupies uh, 
do have. And her mother and her stepdad were uh, very like emotionally and physically abusive toward her. Um, her her brother and sister were, I think, uh, like a good a good chunk older than her, where they were uh, listening to music that she wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And so it was like it was through them that she discovered Elvis and all these amazing musicians and Rolling Stones. And so she found uh, like great solace in listening to these bands. And uh, but her mother was like, if I catch you listening to Stones, like you're going to go to hell. And she's like, I'll do it anyway. (laughs) Do Do you remember the first CD or I don't know if you were t- a tape the first remember, tape or the first CD that um, you ever bought I remember the first one that I like desperately needed to get was a silver chair interesting yes I remember I mean I remember listening to Stones and the Beatles and all that growing up because of my father but the first one that like I discovered on much music I was like what is this band yeah. like this is amazing it was definitely silver chair and a my dad, like, I begged him to take me, and I remember going to his shop and then going home and, you know, listening to it over and over. And yeah, I definitely, I, so many of us can uh, relate to the just locking ourselves in our room and listening to this. For me, it was the Space Jam soundtrack. I don't even know, <laughs> but that was the first CD that I bought with my own money. Do you remember it who was, was on it? R. Kelly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Monica. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Um, uh, hit him high, hit him high, hit him high. And you hit him low, hit him low, hit him low. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, for me, it was that uh, because, like, I listened to, of course, like, I grew up with hearing uh, Tom Petty and my mom loved the Eagles and mm-hmm. there was lots of talking yeah. heads, Steely Dan, Absolutely. all that great stuff for sure. My brother was into, my brother liked Aerosmith. Um, you know, Aerosmith. the Alanis Morissette CD was hanging around, but like purchasing with my own money at the age of yeah, ten. Yeah, it was Space Jam, Backstreet, and Backstreet Boys. I was never into the boy bands. So when when I do an episode <laughs> on my sexual awakening yeah. via boy bands. <laughs> Sorry, but I guess I'm sorry, listeners. I, we're gonna have to get somebody else on to be my. I will. I will do the rock and roll side, and you because can... <laughs> it might be w- worth exploring. Because you know what, I didn't have the Beatles, and yeah. I didn't have Elvis, mm-hmm. but I had Nick Carter, and I had Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio. So, well, Lizzie is actually a great fan of Nick Carter, so she will love hearing that. <laughs> okay. All right. Amazing. So. Yeah, Serena moving on. Was, exactly. Was at, she was Kathleen at this point. She was a Stones, not a Beatles fan. And she says she found solace not only in the music, but in the rock magazines. And it's through the Mox magazines where she discovered Anita Pallenberg, Marion Faithful, uh, Patty Boyd, Jane Asher. And in her book, she says, These girls were so divine and wore the hippest clothes. Every one of them had the look. And they were with cool guys who made great music. I found these girls absolutely superior. Thanks so, yeah. Um, at 15, she moved out, moved in with her estranged father, but he had a, another family already 
going there and she never really felt welcome there and then she went back with her mother for a while but that was a very abusive scene so by the time she was 17 she just left home she went to texas uh she was like basically living on the street you know copying couches wherever she could just trying to find her own way it was actually in texas that she had her first uh rock and roll encounter and it was with lou reed um hey they did not sleep together or anything but she she has a story about how out of everyone there like he he seemed to like gravitate towards her and they had a nice conversation and um meeting him sort of fueled a fire in her that was already burning about uh the fact that she needed to be in new york and that was like that was where she knew in her heart her story was going to begin. It's wild how some of these groupies, they are just pulled Mm -hmm. to New York. Um, I'm so pulled to New York. And you are one of those. (laughs) And some of them are just total LA. Oh yeah. And there's such a big difference between the two too. Like you can, you can tell an LA doll and a New York doll. Absolutely. Mm. But they work, they go together too. Not saying. And then we have our Toronto dolls. Mm -hmm. And then I know that there is some up um, in London, England as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm really looking forward to to the day where we all get together. All all night. Yes. Just wait and see what we all do. (laughs) Uh, So in the summer of 71, she's 19 years old with $300 in her pocket. She moved to New York. Uh, She moved to the Y. And. It was through one of her roommates there that she learned about Max's Kansas City. And her friend took her there, and slowly she began to, you know, meet interesting people. And one of those people was Lee Childers. And uh, I noticed in the photos it mm -hmm. said Lee, so L-E-E-E, Black Childers. Childers. I wonder... The same person. Is same person if they, but if they dropped the black sometimes or. Oh, I'm just, I, I dropped the black. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Lee Black Childers. Uh, and she also met Candy Darling. Um, and it was sort of through those two that she began developing her own persona. So this was a photographer and. Just uh, a member of the scene, and basically. The of the scene. Uh, okay. Some Warhol crowd. Just like, you know, a New York persona, I guess. Um, Lee ended up giving her the, the Marilyn makeover, if you will. Uh, dark lipstick, plucked, drawn on eyebrows, uh, raccoon eyes, Marilyn platinum hair, and that sort of style. Uh, she also wore like glamorous tight clothing and she says they used to like watch old Hollywood films and go thrift shopping and like Lee had uh, a huge effect on her image and once and once she like had the makeover um, all the attention just zoomed right to her interesting um the Warhol crowd got like really, who's this woman? Like, look at her. She's so beautiful. And uh, she ended up meeting Warhol. She ended up meeting John Lennon and Yoko. Um, she actually was part of like a small project that they did. I think it's called Legs. It's just images of legs. <laughs> and she says that she got paid with a dollar bill signed by John Lennon. But that night she used the dollar bill at Max's. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that drink was good. 
Um, so it it's also after this and meeting Warhol that she got a small non-speaking part solely on her image in uh, Pork, the mm-hmm. the play, um, and. Was that the one with cherry? With cherry, absolutely. Yes, and she has a little uh, paragraph about cherry. She says, "Cherry is one of my favorite people. She was a pure work of art with great laugh and big tits. She was also really smart and the most openly sexual woman I've ever met, with beautiful fire engine red hair and a wild nature." Every book that's been that she's been mentioned in, everybody loves cherry. Absolutely, I love that. And I love that, like, they all celebrate that she did what she wanted, just like we say in the opening of our podcast here. She really went after it, and she didn't care what people thought of her. You know, she was a sexual being, and if that, if you had a problem with that, that was your problem. That was never her problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She shared the episode that I did on her. So, Cherry, we got to get you on, babe. Oh, God, yes. That would be amazing. We'll come to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you'll be hearing from us. Um, so, yeah, she had the, she had a non-speaking part solely because of this makeover, and Warhol just put her in there. But because of that, when Pork went to London, she didn't she didn't go with the production. Uh, she stayed back in New York, but um, Lee and Cherry did end up going and. What we know from both Cherry and Angela Bowie's book is that they ended up meeting Bowie there and um, with uh, Tony DeFry's company, what was it called? Uh, Main Man? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so Cherry started working that and um, when when they came back to New York, Basically, everyone was running up to Sorinda being like, oh, my God, like, you got to meet this man, like, David Bowie. Like, he was amazing. So she knew about him already when in 72, Bowie came to New York. Um, And she ended up meeting him and Angie. Uh, In her book, she says, they were the nicest couple, though she was more like a business partner. Angie's a great woman, very intelligent and nurturing. She's the type of person who really cares about her friends, defending them like an angry mama bear. Mm-hmm. And we all know Angie had no problem with uh, Bowie having affairs, and she had her own. So what ended up happening Let's was... Let's go back to that term, <laughs> polyamorous. So yes, exactly. when I was talking about them, it was just open relationship. They were in an open relationship. Mm-hmm. They And I was like, well, she... Yeah, so... They were polyamorous. They were, absolutely. And uh, so Sorinda's 19, Bowie's 24. They ended up having an affair. They did only once with Angie have a a little threesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when we say, so she was having an affair with Bowie, is that like a positive word? Like a positive? They were having an affair. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think people think affair and they think secrecy Mm -hmm. lies. Well, uh they actually decided to bring Sorinda on tour with them for a while. And this is David, Angie, Sorinda. And Angie happened to be having a nice side relationship with uh, one of Bowie's bodyguards, Anthony Jones. Right. So they're all aware. Uh, I think Sorinda even talks about like Angie would be in one room with 
Anthony and she'd be in the room right beside with David. Like they were all perfectly aware and as everybody should adults. be. Yes. Good. Okay. Um. So it was during this time Bowie asked her uh, one night in bed. He was like, "I want to write a song for you. Like, what do you want?" Oh God! And she said <sighs> something like the Yardbirds because she was really into the Yardbirds. And uh, he ended up writing Gene Genie. Now, the lyrics are actually about Iggy Pop, mm-hmm. who Sorinda's not even sure if they had met officially yet, and it's quite possible. Um, but, yes, he wrote that for Sorinda, but about Iggy. And if you go on YouTube, you can watch the video of Jean Genie. Which and, I did. Yes, and you can see Sorinda in the background dancing and having a great time and it's adorable she's so adorable speaking of music videos um in an episode um in our episode about roxana shirazi Mm -hmm. i had my friend simeon uh record the chapter titles yes and today simeon messages me and she's like oh i've had such a great day (laughs) <laughs> I'm so sorry, Simeon. I will never try to redo your accent again like that. <laughs> so she says, I had such a great day. Um, things are going good with my music. So she's an amazing singer-songwriter. But she's like, and I made out with a cute boy in a band. And uh, she was just like, I love being a groupie. That's just the best message to get. Just pure positivity and happiness yeah did i say what i wanted to say about her though what did what were you just talking about music videos so she was in a music video today too that's what she messaged me so she was like this and this and this and i was in a music video i love being a groupie so what and what's so great about her is that now she's like completely embraced it too Mm -hmm. but she's not she's not even she could be totally almost uh, not wanting to to say groupie because she's a musician yeah because yeah. she's she's that she is and the, so many musicians like marianne she has stuff. the groupies yeah but you can be a musician have groupies and also be a groupie absolutely and we, as we said before absolutely. in other episodes there's levels upon levels upon levels of different mm-hmm. kinds mm-hmm. cool all right so they had this relationship for a few months she went on tour with them but they knew it was you know it wasn't a permanent thing. So a few months later, um, her time with Bowie ended and she says, I really cherish my time with David. I adored being with him. He was never difficult or demanding. He was just happy to be with me. He was a great lover. And we talked a lot in bed. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe she left them in San Francisco and then she went back to New York and she says that she was pregnant with Bowie's child. But no. It, yeah. But she ended up having an abortion. Mm. Um, she just, she knew that that wasn't for her. Right. And I think that just says a, something great about her character because if we think about, you know, negativity towards groupies, then people who have a negative view might have immediately jumped to, ooh, but if she had that baby, yeah. then she would have been on, like, you know, collecting on, those checks. That's and, right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, like, she knew that was an option, but she wasn't going to do that. Not for her. Exactly. 
So she's back in uh, New York. Around 73, she began dating David Johansson, who is the front man for the New York Dolls. Uh, my friend Lizzie has a, a little connection to the New York Dolls as well. So. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so your friend Lizzie, who you're talking about, yes. has a connection to the New York Dolls, mm-hmm. who have a connection with Sorinda, yes. who has a connection with David Bowie. So what is that degree of separation? <laughs> Rock and roll. Yeah. That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in her book, she really describes their relationship like... You know those relationships where everyone's telling you, like, why are you with this guy? Like, you shouldn't be with this guy. And just because of all that, you're like, I'm going to be with this guy. So... I'm nodding my head, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So that's basically what happened with Johansson, unfortunately for him. Um, It was also in 73 that she met Aerosmith for the first time. Uh she didn't she didn't like Steven Tyler at all. She called him a crazy looking guy who dressed like a court jester. Yeah. <laughs> Accurate. So, yeah, there there was no interest there, but she developed a friendship with Joe Perry and his girlfriend Alyssa Perry. Um a little tidbit on Alyssa here. If you listen to Aerosmith's song Sweet Emotion, mm. that's actually about her. Oh. Not not a nice song. I mean. <laughs> but she also <laughs> amused herself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she's not really into Johansson like a permanent thing. But the reverse psychology of it all, she ended up with him. Um, I think maybe also what also influenced it was suddenly she was that girl in those rock and roll magazines. Yes. She was with him. You can find tons of photos of them online. They were adorable together. And yeah, they got a lot of, uh, a lot of, they made a lot of news. Let's put it that way. So it's really interesting because it's like, when did that stop happening too? Where the groupies were in the magazines. Right? Like, Um, I know Rolling Stone, like they used to have groupies in their magazines and uh, they used to make like rock and roll magazines specifically with groupies. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like that, that, that magazine that I have about Led Zeppelin, um, there's four pages dedicated to our GTOs Mm -hmm. and then just uh, watching the Frank Zappa documentary on Netflix and him being like, they're talking about how great they're a phenomenon. And he's like, nobody was talking about them. And now I'm talking about them. Mm -hmm. And you know, here we go again. Yeah. So they, people stopped talking about them and started really disrespecting them and really putting this negative spin. So of course, why would anybody want to celebrate them and put them in a magazine? Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And this stuff actually sort of started around this time. And um, you can tell because in 77, she's still with Johansson. They're still not right for each other. And I think they do both know it. At least Serena did. But um, Alyssa Perry, they were having a little conversation together and about how everyone's getting married. And Alyssa said to Serena, 
You don't want people to think you're a groupie, do you? And Sorinda says, what a horrible thought. I definitely didn't want that. So I decided to marry David. And yep, she asked him. David gave in because that's what she wanted. And they ended up getting married. Mm. Um, obviously, going into a relationship or a marriage like that, it's not going to work. Um, they were only married for like a year, maybe two, but... It was pretty much over, like, right when it began. Um, It's around this time, also, that the New York Dolls were disbanding. And she got a role in a Warhol film called Bad. And that you can also find on YouTube, I looked. Oh, great. Yeah. So she was sort of climbing up a little bit while he was... On his descent. Yeah. But uh, if you don't know about David Johansson, you should look him up. He turned his career around. Uh, He became Buster Poindexter. And he had a whole thing like that. And he was an actor. He's in the movie Scrooged. He's the taxi driver, for those who know that. And uh, yeah. And the New York Dolls are like... I've seen the New York Dolls play. So they got back together. And yeah. So this is sort of where David leaves the picture. So, making room for <laughs> Steven Tyler. So, yeah, she did not like Steven Tyler at first. Um, this is also sort of the part of the book where it takes a turn for the worse. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, so, through her friendship with Joe and Alyssa, they would sometimes send her plane tickets and be like, come out on tour with us for a while. And so she would go around with Aerosmith, but she was not with Tyler. She was friends with Joe and Alyssa. Um, She says that her and Joe had feelings for each other, but they never acted on it. And she says that he was cute. Oh, yeah. Um, Who do you think is cuter? Steven, I guess. I mean, and I'm talking about like, younger Steven. I, Steven Tyler looks kind of like a grandma now. So, <laughs> so yeah. Does. But like 1977 Steven Tyler? Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. But Joe Perry's like the good guy. Like, I would prefer to be with Joe. I think. Okay. Um, so there's this weird dynamic there. She says that her and Joe kind of had this thing. And then when she started to give Steven Tyler a chance, she says Alyssa Perry got crazy. And she obviously either was in love with Steven Tyler herself or with the idea of being like the woman in the group. Oh, yeah. So this weird dynamic happened where she was good friends with Joe and Alyssa. Then when they they were both like dead set against her and Tyler getting together, which again, you tell people not to get together. It's bound to happen. So forbidden love. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So her and Steven are together now. Basically, her relationship with Alyssa, her friendship is like dead. Um, she says something interesting, um, at this point in the book, uh, let me just read it. I was a minor rock and roll hotshot by then, which is different from a groupie. 
I used to feel guilty because I didn't fuck enough famous people, but I found that I didn't have to sleep with these guys to get into the scene. Rock and roll didn't equal sex for me. It equaled music. If someone made music I liked, that's what I was interested in. This is just... That's the definition. It's of a groupie. A essential <laughs> definition of the groupie. Yeah. yeah. That's like, you know, tossing back to Roxana too, who was reclaiming the word slut, mm-hmm. which again was almost just again a definition of groupie, but, yeah. uh, but with less of the music part put uh, in. I'm going to let that one sit for now and we'll get back to that at the end of Sorinda's story. We can... Sounds good. Um, so... Let, yeah. Let that soak in, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yeah. At this point in the book, her and Steven are together and basically like immediately yeah, that the book turns into a different thing and it's like just story after story about how violent Steven Tyler is, how loving he was one minute, how terrible he was the next, how he would give her, you know, jewelry after jewelry to make up for whatever terrible thing he did. Now, this is very it's a it's very similar to bb buell's Mm -hmm. story so bb buell i read yeah her autobiography Mm -hmm. so bb is the mother of Liv tyler yes and uh she was with steven tyler she was with steven when um sarinda was married to johansson you're right just right before and bb was also polyamorous with Todd Rundgren, Mm -hmm. so in an open relationship, and she was with, uh, yeah, with Steven Tyler at the time, and Mick Jagger around that time, but not quite. Like Sorinda says that Steven got with her because he knew Mick had. Mm, Funny how that kind of stuff happens. (laughs) And that's an interesting thing, too, because... Well, it's what like, is he doing? Did with Tyler her? want to sleep with Mick? Probably. Was, was that, yeah, that was right his, away. I'm like, yep, yeah, <laughs> no question. Uh, what other, you know, conclusion can you come to? Yeah, because if you can't sleep with Mick, then sleep with the woman the that's woman. sleeping with Mick. Exactly. Um, although we know with Bowie that maybe it was possible, but I don't know. Maybe yeah, with egos getting in the way and whatever. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah, BB stuff. had in- the same kind of. Story. Yeah, so then it makes me wonder, you know, was Steven Tyler, uh, you know, classic rock star, rock star with um, any kind of mental illness? Well, he uh, had a serious, serious drug addiction. And of course, that played into every terrible thing that happened in their relationship. And oh my goodness, I'm not saying that. I didn't mean to say this is where I can get myself into trouble by saying, well, people with mental illness are inherently um, this way. Inherently no. this way, not no. at all. But maybe he was just trying polar, to understand, say, thinking like, about the jewelry one day, abuse one day. Exactly. Um, she stuck with him, though she loved him. They wanted to have a child right away. She, like a lot of women in this situation, thought, if I have a baby he'll become the man that the 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 good man always and at this point she wouldn't have known that he was already a father no okay um so yeah they got married in september of 78 and mia tyler came in december of 78 and so now if you're following us this is Liv tyler's half sister yes um so yeah again this book 
at one point, Sarinda sums it up for you if you haven't figured it out for yourself. She says, You know, I hate him for making me do this. I never thought I'd have to expose my personal and private life. It's no secret that I'm writing this book because my alimony settlement is 252 a week from a guy who just sold his song publishing to Sony for something like 34 million. Mm. Excuse me for being resentful. Yeah. So you can, just from that, you understand the tone of the book at this point. In the first half, you like, it feels like she she liked telling her story. Second half, it's like, I hate Steven Tyler. Uh, I'm going to tell you every terrible thing he's ever done to me. The, the thing that really upset me the most about reading the book, though, is she brings the, the kids into it. And she tells of like, she, he, she, she tells Mia's story, basically, uh, Mia needs a new computer, but do you think she'll get it from him? Like things like that. Right. So it feels a little, you don't feel good reading it at this point, but um, yeah. Well, it's kind of like how Angie's book got towards the end as well. Yes. I mean, in the beginning, she mentioned something like David was not supportive of me writing this book because the last thing he wants to see is this book in print. So then the first half was very much the loving and supportive relationship. And then the drugs Mm -hmm. come come in and then the decline of the relationship. And hey, she has reason to be resentful and bitter. Like it was a bad relationship. She ended up with very little. She had their child to support still, and it was tough on her. It's just, we we know that if she had written the book later in life, or, hey, maybe if she had gotten a better settlement even, the tone would be different, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just unfortunate that she had to tell her story at this point in her life where this is the tone it came out in but it is what it is um she was also a drug addict for the first four years of mia's life but then she cleaned up um what kind of drugs heroin oh my and then methadone to get off the heroin and coke and like doing the same thing as steven tyler like pretty much all through their relationship it was like that and i think they were together for like six or seven years but it was like for the first four that they were trying to be a, a married couple. And then yeah. for the last couple, they they both cheated. They both, Tyler was, you know, off. They had their own kind of separate thing. Had the affair in the bad sense of the term. Yes, exactly. Um, and she also mentions in the book about finding out about uh, BB's daughter, Liv. Mm-hmm. And the way that happened um, was Mia came home once from a tour. Sometimes Stephen would send a plane ticket so that she could come on the tour for a few days. And she said to her mom, like, I met this girl backstage and everyone kept saying we like we looked alike and. And uh, and it was the girl. Wasn't it the girls that ended up putting it together anyways before anybody told them? Yeah, and of course, BB was trying to be I guess maybe smart about it and she would I don't know if it's smart she would bring Liv to shows to kind of like it's so obvious that he's the father of both of them and she kind of flaunted in his face to be like acknowledge this acknowledge this but of course Steven Tyler wouldn't not until uh they got the lawyers involved but um 
And now, like, you look at them and you look at their social media presence. They're all, like, they all, they're all in love with each other. Oh, yeah. And, like, they love each other very much. And did you see that thing on Instagram? And it was Mia, Liv, and Steven. And it was just, like, in a world of Kardashians, be a be Tyler. Tyler. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, Sorinda, she gets a little angry with Tyler at first, right after realizing Liv was his daughter. Of course, Liv started to act and became a celebrity in, on her own. And that's when Tyler sort of became more father. It's weird that you're calling him fatherly. Tyler now. Yeah. <laughs> um, Steven. Uh, but yeah, the the daughters, me and Liv, like right away, the minute the minute they realized that they were sisters, they were best friends. And um, Sorinda and BB got together. And even before Steven admitted that they were like, Sorinda says, I took one look at Liv and I was like, this is Mia's half sister. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, she wrote the book in 97, obviously for money, as she said. Um, And yeah, the book, the books just obliterates Tyler. It's just, if you ever want to like read like an angry ex-wife book, this one's it. Well, the first you know half that of, I do. Yeah, the first so half is great. you are leaving the book here with and me. And I want to tell you, in case you're interested, um, she gets very detailed about their private life and in and out of the bedroom. So Links some... told me a story <laughs> and it's juicy. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 2001, uh, Sorinda had a stroke. Mm. Uh, according to Wikipedia, I don't want to say that this is actual fact, but it says that she was kind of homeless at the, that time. And a bunch of her friends got together um, and put a benefit on for her at CBGB's. And Steven Tyler uh, paid for her hospital bills and donated a guitar signed by Aerosmith. And David Bowie also donated a guitar signed by him. Good. Yeah. So it's nice that these men, when she like really needed help, they uh, extended a, a hand to her. Uh, unfortunately, though, she ended up having an inoperable tumor in her brain and she passed away in september of 2002 Mm. um if you go on youtube uh there's an interview with oprah and mia tyler and steven tyler and mia talks about how she believes that her mother's anger and bitterness and just all that hate that she like pent up over the years uh, affected manifested yes in, into in illness a tumor into yeah um and mia tyler has written her own book i haven't read it yet, but i imagine there's quite a bit about sarinda and growing up in that environment we should absolutely put it on the list absolutely and even yeah. you know do an episode on Mia. Yeah, I'd love rock and to, roll daughters. Maybe. I'd love to know more about her. Yeah. That's it. One of my best friends is a rock and roll daughter. 
Oh, yeah. And I haven't persuaded her quite yet Mm -hmm. to come on and tell her story because like we're saying about our own selves and our stories and us groupies in, you know, we had our 60s, 70s groupies and we have our 80s groupies and our 90s and then we have our modern day 2017 groupies. And we're still building our stories. We're still building them and we're still coming to terms with them. We're still. Mia is sort of a modern groupie too because she married um, a guy in the band Papa Roach, and I think she also dated um, another musician or two. Yeah. Following in the footsteps of her mom. Well, yeah. And then, you know, with my friend, one day when she's ready and she's come to terms with um, share her story and, yeah. and wanting to share and what that was like, then she'll come on and tell it. That's awesome. So just to go back on how Sarinda constantly claims she's not a groupie but then talks about how Anita Poundberg and these women are her role models and you know I I understand why so many women uh want to distance themselves from the word or from the term groupie um as it was molded into in the 80s uh but I feel like by running away from the term instead of making an effort to define it the way it should be taken, they had an active part in the destruction of the positivity that it once held. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate that all these women, instead of just being like, I'm not a groupie, like, this is what a groupie means and this is what I was, and instead of that, just being like, I am a groupie, but this is what a groupie means. And the way that she described herself... That's how like we describe ourselves. That's how we describe the term groupie. Yeah. So it's sort of it was like an oxymoron to uh, hear her claim she's I'm not this, but I am this. That's it. And I think you know just having those outside influences and mm-hmm. um, and I've said this before. There was a reason. So you know we're you know, just past episode 20 now and really coming to terms and accepting and celebrating, being so happy about what this podcast means and what it turns into. But come episode one, when the name of the podcast was being thought up, it very well could have been called Groupies. Groupies. Yeah. But? Just didn't know how that word would... Uh, right how it would how other people would see it how they maybe maybe it would have attracted more listeners maybe it would have made people go away or like not that i would want those people who would think of who would think of the term and go nope not even gonna try that yeah listening in general but it just it didn't it just it just wasn't Mm -hmm. it just did not become that so having the the because the word muse is a lot more respected and it's a lot more i think understood and it could and it spans genres Mm -hmm. and then we have that stuff so then we reserve the right to talk about whatever we want Mm -hmm. so yeah we've got music but then we can also talk about community and friendship and magic and tarot cards and anything like that so in a way it is quite fitting but absolutely we're here to bring that that word to light and just shine the bright light on what it really is absolutely and yeah it's interesting to hear like 
these women do define themselves by the terms that we define groupie. Mm-hmm. So, and absolutely, it has changed. Mm-hmm. Groupiedom has changed because, like, for example, I'm looking at these beautiful pictures that in this book. Mm-hmm. So you gave it to me and I was, I went straight away with what I always do in books like this is I went to the picture section and there's a beautiful, you know, beautiful candid photos and non-candid photos that were taken by Lee or photos taken by her. And because it was documented pretty well then and people were very receptive to cameras, mm-hmm. I think that it was easier for them those pictures of the men and the women together to just be made public however so what i'm where i'm going with this is i'm saying that groupie culture has changed rock and roll has changed Mm -hmm. you know talking about locks on backstage doors and mean bouncers and or security guards or whatever it is it's not always that way definitely not but it has changed and one way that has changed has been in terms of like social media and Mm -hmm. photos so i was at um an after party one night after a festival that had happened or after a show that had happened and all of the bands from yeah it was a festival were in this one particular area and I told this story on another podcast that I was a guest on and there was a hilarious moment with a bunch of musicians crammed into a smoky bathroom and I had a beautiful camera in my pocket And it would have been a perfect opportunity to take that out and snap a photo and have that for later. Yeah. Or have it for, you know, someday or have it as a memory. But the moment that you get out a camera or and especially a phone, people think social media. Yeah. There's no. The privacy, the issue comes up. So where we were, well, you know, we were in a bar and it was an after hours thing. And Mm -hmm. what if somebody recognized the bathroom and then the bar got in trouble and the bar gets shut down or what, you know, what if, what if, what if. So in back in those days, instead of the guys jokingly striking a pose, they would have been like, maybe maybe I don't know because I didn't take out the camera and take the picture and I was a little bit disappointed that that moment in time and then there were other there have been other moments too where there's been just a beautiful moment between two musicians and different bands that were just together playing on the piano together this sort of impromptu moment Mm -hmm. but maybe now that um that I've been able to work through this and think about it and you know when people know you and trust you then that's the thing they too. know yeah. and i think that's it it's about trust so in terms of the like the musicians at the piano i could have done it then because they know me they trust me yeah and a lot of guys in the bathroom but a lot of them i had just met that night so mm. it's like do you know what i mean like things have changed absolutely and, and like you were saying like uh lee black childers and danny fields and jenny lens like these women these people they were known in the scene they probably always had the camera there and these people knew Hey, these photos might be seen someday, but they're gonna, you know, go back. To but it their doesn't mean they're gonna be exactly. Like, they're not gonna be seen in six minutes on Instagram. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um. I w- I've always been uh, 
iffy about taking out a camera or a phone when I'm in situations like that I I really have like no documentation other than my memory that's it so uh, that's I I remember being in a lot of those moments and just being like I would love to take a photo and I've got a camera but you know what just breathe look at it watch it enjoy it and maybe if you want to someday write about it but there is a photographer in Toronto who I really admire and her name is Vanessa Hines Mm -hmm. Um, uh, forgive me Vanessa I don't know if it's Vanessa Hines or Vanessa Haynes Mm -hmm. but you should really check her out on Instagram because she's doing some really great things things uh, with rock and roll photography and um, a lot of the times I'll be looking at our photos and we'll have a lot of mutual friends that are liking it and a lot of bands and people that I admire who are liking her photos and that she's taking photos of Mm -hmm. so you know shout out to you keep up the great work I'm a fan of your work awesome I'm gonna check her out cool please do so yeah I think that pretty much wraps up Sarinda I love it yeah so again her book's called dream on um I don't know if it's in print anymore. I only got it because my friend Lizzie uh, was sweet enough to send it to me. Uh, hopefully you can find it if it interests you. I I tried to, you know, make it easy for people. You, like, you don't have to hear the terrible details. Like, you know that they're there if you want to get into uh, it all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at the title here. Um, living on the edge with Steven Tyler. And I remember when the song, I'll have to check what year it came out, living on the edge, but I remember hearing it and I remember it affecting me very deeply. Really? Yeah. Like it, yeah. You, like feeling really strong emotions. I would say like early nineties. Yeah. So being around 94, 95, I'd say. Yeah. So being around maybe eight years old or so. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. I, I, that's when I think one of my favorite Aerosmith songs. Yeah, they're they're a really great example of a band having, like, a massive comeback. Like, they disbanded. They they were both just... They were known as the Toxic Twins. They were drugged up. They... You you would never think that they would have come back in the 90s and been so big like they were. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that weird video with Liv Tyler and Alicia Silverstone. Yeah. They're, like... Crazy? Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Alicia was in like three of their music videos. She was the Aerosmith girl. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you so much for telling me that story, Lynx. Absolutely. And thank you, Lizzie, for the book. Lizzie, I can't wait to meet you. I can't wait to get to know you. And I can't wait to grow, grow this group. Yes. And thanks to all the listeners. Yeah, we will. Uh, oh, before we before we say our goodbyes, we'll say you can find links and I on Instagram. We're at Muses and Stuff a podcast, mm-hmm. and you can find us on Facebook. Same thing. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes if you like what you hear. Uh, share it with a friend. Share it with your fellow groupies, your, your fellow dolls, your fellow babes, your fellow buds. Yeah. <laughs> All right, right. and we will see you next time. Yeah. See ya. Bye-bye. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future, like... What if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The 
result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H Y P E R T H E T I C A L.